Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Uh, I get the awesome privilege to introduce my professor, uh, Dr. Futado. I just took a class from him. Uh, poets learned a lot. Um, but yeah, he's serving as the academic dean right now. And um, man, uh, all of us have gone through him. DL, Justin, Goose, Daniel, if you guys remember him, and myself. And so we've all had the opportunity to sit under his teaching, and it's just a blessing. Even when I was going through my hard times in seminary, I, I got to talk to him and uh, just showed me a lot of grace and <laughs> uh, just gave me such good godly wisdom. So uh, just a blessing to have him here this morning. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, I know you guys are going to just love hearing him. So let's welcome him up this morning as he comes to speak for us. I see a sign here that says, please don't move. And I'm just going to presume that that applies to somebody else, right? Well, my pleasure to be here. Uh, always a delight to be able to worship with new congregations, uh, meet new believers in other parts of the world, other uh, parts of the country, other parts of Orlando. Um, I gather you're beginning a series for the summer uh, on the book of Psalms. And so there's no better place to begin than at the beginning. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Psalm 1 in your Bible. Um, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the introduction to the book of Psalms. And we're just going to be focusing this morning as, uh, as a beginning sermon, a beginning study for the summer series on the Psalms in answering the question, why did the Holy Spirit give us the book of Psalms? Now, what immediately comes to our minds, I think, is that this was Israel's ancient hymn book. Um, some of you probably maybe have never seen a hymn book before in this young generation. But back in the day, we used to actually sing out of a hymn book. I remember when we moved to California in 1988. One of the, um, I was a pastor before I moved to California to teach, and when we went to this church, one of the older women in the congregation uh, asked me if we sang off the wall songs at the church that I pastored. And, you know, off the wall can mean strange. So I thought, is she asking me if we sang strange songs? But that's not what she meant at all. She meant, did we sing off the wall? I said, no, we didn't sing off the wall. We sang in hymnals. But in, in all the churches that I've been in since California, they have been singing off the wall songs. So um, we might think that the book of Psalms was a hymnal, a collection of songs to be sung in worship. And certainly some of the Psalms were composed and were used in worship. But I don't think that the book as a whole was given to God's people as a hymnal. It was given to us for another reason, and in one word, that reason is instruction. The book of Psalms is an instruction manual. God knows that life can be complicated at times, and He wanted us to have a manual to teach us how to navigate life. Um, two H words in particular, and this morning we're only going to have the opportunity to look at part of, of uh, the psalm. But um, there's a... a 
that some Presbyterian churches, when they're teaching their children, they use something called a catechism, question and answer. Has anybody here ever used a catechism in learning the basics of the faith? We have some. There's a children's catechism. First question, who made you? Now, you know the answer to that question. One word answer starts with G, who made you? There you go. If, if kids are two years old, they can start with the catechism. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and keeping his commandments. Why should you glorify God? Because he made me and takes care of me. It's just a simple question-answer way of teaching children the basics of the Christian faith. Well, um, one of those questions that has been edited uh, used to say, in what estate did God create our first parents? And when my second son, who's now 26, first asked that, was first asked that question, he said, and he was only about maybe two and a half, he said, I don't know, was it Maryland? Now, where were we living at the time? We were living in Maryland. Uh, the question is not in what state did God create our first parents, but in what condition. And there's a two-fold answer to that. God made us holy and God made us happy. And Psalm 1 really teaches that the book of Psalms is an instruction manual to teach us how to live lives that are both holy and lives that are happy. And those two things go together. God created us to be holy, and he created us to be happy, happy in the sense of having well-being in every area of our lives. Now, because we have rebelled against God, instead of being happy and holy, we became sinful and miserable. Sin and misery go together. Uh, when we live sinful lives, it results in misery in one way or another, and God God knows that that's our natural inclination, so he's given us the book of Psalms to teach us once again in his people, as his people, how to live holy lives that will also be happy lives. And this morning, we're just going to look at Psalm 1 as it teaches us that the Holy Spirit gave us the book of Psalms as an instruction manual for a holy life. Uh, maybe sometime I'll come back and we'll Look at the other side, a happy life. Notice the first word in Psalm 1 in, in our English translations is probably something like blessed, which means happy. If you're reading maybe a new living translation, it says, oh, the joys of those who, the happy life. We're going to be focusing on the Psalms and a holy life. So, Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's words. It's found in Psalm 1, and I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. Now, if you, how many of you have an NIV? You're going to, you're, it's very common. You're going to notice a few differences because the NIV has recently been edited and reissued. What I'm reading is the new one that is the 2011 NIV, and most of you probably have what is now called the NIV 84, because it was produced in 1984. So you're going to see a couple of differences, but trust me, I'm, I'm reading the NIV. Blessed is the one who does not uh, walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. 
Whatever they do prospers, not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, your word which is truth. We pray that you would now sweeten this word in our hearts, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, the Psalms and a holy life. Just two things to focus our attention on this morning. First of all, uh, a call to delight in the Lord's instruction. Psalm 1, notice it says, uh, His delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, I'm a Hebrew professor. That's what I love the most. So I've got to teach everybody at least a little bit of Hebrew. Yes or yes? Okay, now you probably all know the word shalom, right? Uh, Shalom is a common... Here's your first Hebrew word uh, for the morning. Everybody say Torah. Have you heard... Has anybody heard the word Torah before? Now, in English, we say Torah, but in Hebrew, you tend to accent words on the last syllable. And so in Hebrew, we say Torah. In English, we say Torah. Um, The hardest part... Um, of being academic dean at Reformed Theological Seminary is graduation because the academic dean has to read all the names. And um, I had two Chinese students, and so I, I really work hard because my daughter went to a middle school where the the woman who always read the names for any kind of award ceremony, I'm not kidding, never looked at the list of names until she got to the podium. And the way that she would mangle names. But um, uh, Chinese names, since they're tonal, I really had have to work hard on Chinese names to try to get the right tones. My son, who I, I just took him to um, the airport early this morning, and his fiance, uh, they're, um, they're both fluent in Mandarin. So they, they're my coaches. They give me, they're, they're in, the, in the military and they do Chinese for a living. Um, so they, they're, they're my kind of uh, subterranean coaches. But um, at any rate, Hebrew, we say Torah. But since we speak English here and not Hebrew, we're not going to say Torah. What are we going to say? Torah. That's the word that is translated law. His delight is in the Torah of the Lord. Torah means instruction. It's usually translated law. But it's broader than that. Torah means teaching. Torah means instruction. Let's look at an example of that. Um, Turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verse 1. There the psalmist says, My people, hear my Torah. How's How's that word translated in whatever translation you have? Hear my Teaching, anybody else have a different word than teaching? It's the word Torah. Translators recognize that Torah means teaching. It means instruction. Uh, Go to another verse, book of Proverbs, first chapter. Proverbs chapter 1, 
and verse 8. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, notice the proverb says, Listen, my uh, son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Guess what the Hebrew word is for teaching? Torah. Do not, and notice, don't forsake your father's instruction. Don't forsake your mother's Torah. What is Torah? It is teaching. So we could translate Psalm 1. His delight is in the teaching of the Lord, in the instruction of the Lord. Very helpful, because if we think of the Bible as the law, We can think of it as something really, really heavy that weighs us down. It's teaching. It's instruction. Uh, It's an instruction manual that God has given to us. Now, I am a third-generation cabinet maker. My grandfather was a cabinet maker. My father was a cabinet maker. I grew up building cabinets in my father's cabinet shop. I didn't end up... God called me into a different uh, line of um, work, teaching preaching, that sort of thing. But I grew up working in my father's cabinet shop. So I know how to build cabinets. Um, Have have any of you ever seen this like solder furniture that you can buy like at Target? You can buy like a chest of drawers and it comes in a box and it's all broken down and you pull all the pieces out and there are fasteners and you put it all together. Well, I've put that. It's just like a kit and you follow the instructions. Well, one time when we first moved here from... um, California to Florida, we needed a new corner TV stand. You know, the TV was going to go in the corner and you had to have one of these funny shaped triangular stands for the TV. So we bought one of these things that, you know, you take out of the box and you put it together. Well, I opened up the box and guess what was missing? The instructions were missing. Uh, My first mistake, I started to put this thing together about 11 o'clock at night. That was just wrong. Don't ever do that. Um, and it didn't have any instructions. But I said, well, I'm a third-generation cabinet maker, and I've put these things together before. Surely I can do this, so I'm putting it all together. Now it's about 2 a.m., and um, I have three pieces left, and they just won't fit. They won't go because you have to follow the instructions in sequence. Well, if you've ever seen these things, they always come with a back, and the back is like, cardboard and it's always folded so for whatever reason i decided to open up the back and guess what was sitting inside the back there are the instructions and so i backed up to get in sync with the instructions followed the instructions and at the end i was happy because it was done that's what the bible is life is like putting a cabinet together And most of us, even if we have some skills, we need some instruction along the way so that we can be happy. We need that instruction for holiness so that we can be happy. And that's what the book of Psalms is. It's instruction. Now, this instruction, when it says his delight is in the instruction of the Lord, in the teaching of the Lord, it's found in two places at least. Um, first of all, it's found in the five books of Moses. Can somebody tell us what those five books are? What's the first book of Moses? Genesis, then Exodus, then Leviticus, then Numbers, then Deuteronomy. Those are the five books 
of Moses. Now, turn in the uh, book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 6. Ezra 7, verse 6. It says, This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the Torah of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So now notice we have the Torah of Moses, but who gave the Torah of Moses? The Lord did. It's the Torah of Moses given by the Lord. Let's look at another passage. Uh, just turn back to Second Chronicles thirty-four fourteen. Second Chronicles thirty-four fourteen. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord. Hilkiah the priest found the book of the Torah of the Lord that had been given through Moses. So Ezra talks about the Torah of Moses given through the Lord. Chronicles talks about the Torah of the Lord given through Moses. So what's the relationship between the Torah of Moses and the Torah of the Lord? They're what? They're the same thing. So when we're reading Psalm 1 and it says his delight is in the Torah of the Lord, what did that mean? Where would you find the Torah of the Lord if you wanted to read it? The five books of Moses. The five books of Moses. Now, the, um, the book of Psalms when the Holy Spirit finally put it all together, keep in mind that the book, somebody didn't sit down one morning uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and write all 150 Psalms. They were written by many different people over about a thousand year period. Psalm 90, for example, is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Let's just give Moses a round date of 1400 B.C. Then you have a psalm like Psalm 137, there by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept while our captors said, sing us the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? This psalm was at least written when Israel was in the Babylonian captivity a thousand years later. So the psalms were written by many different people in many different times, in many different places, but the Holy Spirit inspired them all and the Holy Spirit inspired the collecting and putting together of the Psalms into the book as we now have it. And the book of Psalms as we now have it is divided into five books. How do we know that? Uh, look at the end of Psalm 41. The end of Psalm 41. Somebody read for us just the last verse or so of Psalm 41. Uh, probably starts with the word like praise. Anybody? Okay. In other words, Psalm 41 ends with a doxology. Now, if you look at Psalm 42, it's going to say something like book two. Uh, and uh, what what does it say is the last psalm in book two? 72. Go to the end of Psalm 72 and see how Psalm 72 ends. 
What do you find at the end of Psalm 72? Last couple of verses. Another doxology. Exactly. Praise the Lord. Now, if you go to Psalm 73, it says that book 3 ends where? 89. Go to the end of Psalm 89. And guess what you're... Well, just take a guess as to what you're going to find at the end of Psalm 89. Another doxology. Um, Where does uh, Psalm 90 say that book 4 ends? 106. Go to the end of 106 and guess what you're going to find? One more doxology. And all of these doxologies have the word amen at the end of it. And if you get out of some computer software and you search for the word amen in the book of Psalms, you find it only in these verses. In other words, the Holy Spirit put some very clear markers in the book to divide the book up into five books, each book ending in a doxology. So I wonder why the Holy Spirit didn't put the book of Psalms together into four books? Or why didn't he put the book of Psalms together into six books? Why five? How many books of Moses? Five. And the books of Moses are all what Hebrew word? Torah. And Torah is translated into English as instruction. So the five books of Moses are instruction. How many books in the book of Psalms? Five. What are the five books in the Psalms given to us for? Instruction, because they also are what Hebrew word? The five books of Psalms are Torah. They are, notice it doesn't say they're a hymnal. We can sing the Psalms, that's good. But the Holy Spirit gave us the book of Psalms as Torah, as an instruction manual, so that we can study this book and know how the pieces of our lives are supposed to fit together. So Torah means instruction. Instruction is found in two places, the Five books of Moses and the five books of the Psalms. And this instruction is something that we delight in. It's something that we delight in. Look at Psalm 112, verse 1. Psalm 112, verse 1. Blessed, after the initial praise the Lord, we see language very much like Psalm 1. Blessed are those who delight in the law of the Lord. We delight in God's word. Now go to Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. God says to Joshua, keep this book of the Torah always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. One of the reasons why we delight in the law of the Lord is because when we follow the instruction manual, it results in success in our lives. Just like when I followed the instruction manual building the kit, It resulted in success. 
I completed the project. God's instruction manual has been given to us for success and for prosperity. Now, some might be saying, whoa, that sounds like a prosperity preacher. Well, there's way too much there to talk about this morning. Um, Somebody's going to have to invite me back to follow up on that one. But uh, let me just say that I didn't say it. God did. God said to Joshua, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Now, what that ends up looking like would take some time to unpack, but at least let's realize what God's Word says, that His instruction manual for a holy life is to result in a happy life. Remember the two H's. God made us to be holy and happy. Because of our rebellion against God, we have become sinful and miserable. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came, he t- we sang about him coming. Jesus says in John chapter 10, he has come so that we might have what L word? He has come so that we might have life. Just a little bit of it? No, life in what? In all of its abundance. Jesus came so that we might have abundant life. Did Jesus come so that you might be more sinful than you currently are? No, he came that you might be what more. It's a word that starts with H and has an O following it. He came so that you might be more holy. And in the same way, did Jesus come so that you might be more miserable than you are? No, he came so that you might be more happy. Now, when are you going to be perfectly holy and perfectly happy? What do we call that? It's another H word. Heaven. Jesus came to bring us to heaven. He lived a life of perfect righteousness in our place. He followed the instruction manual perfectly so that by faith we can receive his perfect righteousness. And he died on the cross to pay the penalty for every time we have failed to follow the instruction manual. So we get his perfect righteousness. We give him our sin so that as Paul says, there is now therefore just a little bit of condemnation left over for you who are in Christ. Yes or yes? No, that's not what Paul says, is it? He doesn't say that so that there is now some condemnation. He doesn't say so there's just a little bit of condemnation. He says There is how much condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus? There is no condemnation. And if if God does not condemn you, why do you keep condemning yourself? You do. When you fail to follow the instruction manual, what do you end up doing? You end up beating yourself up. You end up condemning yourself because you have forgotten the good news. The good news is that Jesus lived a perfect life in your place and died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins so that there is now no condemnation. And so we can quit being better than God. We can quit condemning ourselves. And we can also then quit condemning others. Our fellow believers, do they ever fail to follow the instruction manual? 
Yes, and sometimes when they fail to follow the instruction manual, it ends up hurting us, doesn't it? And so what do we tend to want to do? We tend to want to condemn them. But if God doesn't condemn them, what ought we not to do either? Because there is therefore now no condemnation. Jesus has come so that we might have life in all of its abundance, that we might grow in our holiness, that we might grow in our happiness until we finally reach heaven where we will be perfectly holy and perfectly happy. No wonder we delight in God's instruction manual. It leads us deeper into a holy life. It leads us deeper into a happy life. All in that journey that ultimately leads us to heaven, where we experience perfect holiness and perfect happiness, which is why the Apostle Paul also said, the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who has loved me and who has given himself for me. We're all on a journey. We're all on a path. We're at different stages in that path, but we're all on the path, and the path leads to the same place. It leads to heaven. And we live that life on that path by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us so that there is no condemnation for us, so that we might grow in our holiness, and so that we might grow in our happiness. A call to delight in the Lord's instruction. Now, in the second place, a call to meditate on the Lord's instruction. So let's talk a little bit about meditation as we go back to Psalm 1. You'll notice that in Psalm 1, it says not only that uh, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, it also says who meditates on his law day and night. But, but, Verse 2 follows verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Let's talk about biblical meditation. And first of all, very briefly, we have to see that biblical meditation involves avoiding the wrong advice. Now, you get the wrong advice all the time. Every day, throughout every day, you cannot turn the TV on without getting the wrong advice. You can't listen to the radio without getting the wrong advice. Uh, You can't open up a magazine without getting the wrong advice. Wrong advice permeates our culture. It's in the air that we breathe. So how do you avoid it? Well, in a sense, you, you, you can't avoid it. Uh, you, what, here's what you might think. Okay, I'll just never watch the television. I'll never read a magazine. I will, um, I'll never open up a book. I'll never listen to the radio. Even if you did all that, you couldn't avoid the wrong advice. Because wherever you go, who is always with you? You. And you have a tape player that goes in the back of your mind. You might not think that you have a relationship with yourself, but you really do. We tend to think we have relationships with other people, but you actually have a relationship with yourself. And some of you have a pretty good relationship with yourself. 
Some of you have a pretty lousy relationship with yourself. How do you know what kind of relationship you have with yourself? Just listen to the tape player. When you make a mistake, how much condemnation is there in that tape player that's going? When you're talking to yourself. Some of you don't like yourselves very much. You don't. Some of you are really okay with who you are. You have different kinds of relationships with your... So even if you're all by yourself, you're going to get some wrong advice. So you can't, you can't eliminate the advice, but you have a, a, a beautiful two-fold filtering system that God has given you. A beautiful two-fold filtering system. One is the Word of God, the instruction manual. It helps you filter out all the wrong advice. The other is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, a filtering system that helps you filter out the wrong advice. Notice in verse 1, with regard to this avoiding wrong advice, uh, it's, it starts by saying, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. That's not a very good translation. Uh, somebody give me another translation. An, an, another, you don't have to create one on the spot. You probably have one in front of you. How's verse 1 translated at the beginning? Blessed is the man who does not... Anybody help me? Counsel. Walk in the counsel of the wicked. Somebody give me another word for counsel that starts with A. They don't take the advice of the wicked. If you take the wrong advice, notice what happens. Stand in the way that sinners take. Um, I'm sure that there are some people in this room that are bilingual, yes? Um, And you know that whenever you move from one language to another, it can often be tricky business. Uh, uh, Just a little bit off the subject, but my son was telling us a story. My three boys... Okay, I'm not boasting. I'm just telling you the truth. They're handsome boys. They look like their dad. Back when I had hair. But uh, last summer, my military son was home on leave. And they were at a water park. And they were in line to get some food. And the two young girls who were working in the food area were both Chinese and they were talking about these three really cute white guys that were in line to get some food. And so when my third son gets up to the counter without skipping a beat in fluent Mandarin, he says to them, so which one do you think is the cutest? (laughs) He said they were as red as red could be. Now, why am I telling you that story? Oh, translation. Yeah, that was completely off the subject. (laughs) But you know that whenever you translate from one language to another, something is lost along the way. For example, if if I were to say to you, don't stand in his way, what would that mean in English? Move. Don't stand in his way. Move. And notice what this says. They don't stand in the way that sinners take. So if sinners want to do the wrong thing, just go ahead and let them do it. Don't stand in the way. Well, that's not what this means. 
stand in the way. Way is a metaphor in the Bible for a lifestyle. And if you stand in somebody's way in Hebrew, what that means is you're developing their lifestyle. Take the wrong advice and you end up developing the wrong lifestyle. And then what ends up happening, sitting in the company of mockers, you begin to develop the wrong attitude toward God. Now, when I was young, which was a while ago, if, if I were to say he has an attitude, you would have had to say, what kind? Because back in the day, attitude was neutral. It could be a good attitude. It could be a bad attitude. But language changes. And now if you say she has an attitude, you don't have to ask what kind. Attitude has come to mean a negative attitude, a, a bad attitude. And a, a rebellious attitude toward God. Take the wrong advice. Develop the wrong lifestyle. End up having a rebellious attitude in your relationship with God. Meditation starts with avoiding all of that. And making sure that you never have a bad attitude in your relationship with God presumes that you're on the right path with God and that presumes that you're getting the right advice from God so that you can filter out the wrong advice. And that means that we got to look at the other dimension of meditation. It's not only avoiding the wrong advice, but it's absorbing the right advice by meditating on God's Word. Now, we got to talk a little bit more about what meditation looks like, because what biblical meditation looks like and what meditation in our culture looks like are two fairly different things. So let's talk a little bit about absorbing the right advice. First of all, when you meditate in Hebrew terms, you meditate with your mouth. In our culture, if, we, if I said, let's take five minutes and meditate together, what's one thing that would characterize this room if we were all meditating in our cultural terms? What would the room be like? Silent. Meditation is a silent activity, but in Hebrew, meditation is not a silent activity. It's a mouth activity. Remember what God said to uh, Joshua in Joshua 1.8? Do not let the book of this instruction depart from your mouth, but meditate on it. Don't let it depart from your mouth, but meditate on it. Or think of Psalm 19 at the very end. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my words and meditation. When we, um, when we meditate in Hebrew, we use our mouths. It's an out loud activity. The word that is translated meditate can be used for like the low cooing of a dove or the, the low growl of a lion, or, you know, have you ever listened to somebody uh, talking back in the corner and you can tell they're talking, but you can't hear what they're saying? That's meditation. That's this word. It's kind of this low, low um, speech. Uh, I grew up with, uh, in, an, in an Anglo church, but in a, in, a tr in a prayer tradition that is somewhat like a Korean prayer tradition, and that is that we would take prayer requests, but in my church, the pastor would say, after the prayer request, the pastor would say, let's pray. 
But in my church, we didn't then like take turns. One person pray and another person pray. When the pastor said, let's pray, what did we do? We all prayed at the same time. And nobody prayed what? S-I. Nobody prayed silently. Everybody prayed individually and everybody prayed with their mouths. Everybody prayed out loud. And that's what biblical meditation is like. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. So rather than being a silent activity as in our culture, you meditate by reciting the scriptures. And if you slowly, repeatedly recite two verses of scripture, before long, what have you done? You've memorized it. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. As you meditate on God's word, you are memorizing God's word so that when you need the instructions in the middle of the afternoon, you have them. Remember when Jesus was tempted three times in the wilderness? Every time he was tempted, he answered the temptation by saying three words in English. It is W-R, written, it is written. And then after he said it is written, he quotes from the instruction manual, from the Bible. If Jesus, see, Jesus did not have a Bible like you have. He, did, he certainly didn't have an iPhone. But I see some iPhones out there. I see an iPad. This is, this is the second time I'm preaching from my nook. Jesus did not have a nook. He did not have he did not have an old school Bible like Eugene's Bible. The only Bible he had was what? What he had memorized. And the, you know the the good thing about that is that you always have it with you. I'm in trouble if my battery goes out. I don't have my Bible. But what I have memorized, I don't need a battery for that. You've got it hidden in your heart. And so as you meditate, reciting the Word of God out loud, you memorize it, and it's yours to follow throughout the day. Well, notice that it says, May the, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. You also meditate with the heart as well as with the mouth. Meditation is with the mouth. Meditation is with the heart. Now, obviously, things are different from one culture to another. Uh, Point to the spot on your body where you think. Where do you think? Put your finger on the spot of your body where you think. If we were all in an ancient Hebrew synagogue in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and the rabbi said, point to the spot on your body where you think, guess what nobody would have done? What would they all have done? In the language of the old King James, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. We meditate with our hearts. That means it's a thought process. If we were meditating according to our cultural um, instructions, 
What's the goal of meditation in our culture with regard to the thought process? Turn it off. Turn the brain off. Don't think. You silence the mouth so that you can silence the brain. In Hebrew, you engage the mouth so that you can engage the brain. The word for meditation is at times translated think. We won't look at these, but just jot down a note for further reflection. Psalm 63, 6. And compare it in a couple of translations. Some will use the word meditate. Some will use the word think. Or Psalm 77, 12. Psalm 77, 12. Some will use the word consider, think about. Some will use the word meditate. It's the same word as in Psalm 1. The point is, when we meditate, we are reciting the scriptures, but it's not a mindless recitation. It's a thoughtful recitation. We're thinking about the scriptures, and we're thinking in particular about how they apply to our lives so that we can live a holy life in the presence of God. We think, we think deeply we think in the spirit because meditation is not just a human activity. One more text. First uh, John, I do read the New Testament once in a while. First uh, John chapter 2 and verse 27. The Apostle John says, as for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. The you are not the elders, not the pastors, not the associates. The you are all of us ordinary believers. And John says, you as ordinary believers have been anointed. In the Old Testament, there were three categories of people who were anointed. What's one of them? Who was anointed in the Old Testament? P-R-O, priests, prophets, and K-I, kings. When they were anointed, they actually had oil poured on them. Uh, Not motor oil, not canola oil. It was more like fine perfume. They had this fine perfume poured on them, and it was a symbol. As that fine, fragrant perfume was coming down on them, that was a symbol of who coming down on them? The Holy Spirit. And so the anointing is the Holy Spirit coming to empower. And in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed. In the New Testament, everybody is anointed. The Holy Spirit comes on us so that we might be empowered, in this text, empowered to do what? As for you, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit you have received remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in Him. You are empowered to understand the Word of God. So that meditation is not just the higher your IQ, the better you can meditate. No. The more you depend upon and listen to the Holy Spirit, the better you can meditate. 
This is not just an intellectual activity. It's a spiritual activity where you are relying on the Holy Spirit in order to bring out of the Word of God what you need for your lives. As a preacher, I know some of you this morning. Most of you I don't know. But even those who I know, I don't know well enough to know how the Word of God really applies to where you're living right now. So what do I need to do? I need to rely on the Holy Spirit to take what I say into your lives. You need to rely on the Holy Spirit to understand this word in such a way that you can figure out how to put it into practice in the specifics of your lives. It's a meditation is a spiritual activity. And so why did God give us the book of Psalms? Somebody answer that question in just one word that starts with I instruction. And that instruction is so that we can live what kind of life? A holy life. And the more we live a holy life, the more we're going to have a happy life. Now, let me just ask you a question. And I'm going to conclude with this. How many of you would like to be perfectly happy right now? And what I mean by that is well-being in every area of your life. Well-being in your faith well-being in your family, well-being in your finances, well-being in your relationships. How many of you would like to have perfect well-being in every area of your life right now? Raise your hand. And those of you who didn't are probably the true Presbyterians among us who wouldn't raise a hand in a worship service. Now... (laughs) It's easy... It's easy to have perfect well-being in every area of your life right now. All you need to do is follow Psalm 1, verse 1. Never take the wrong advice, never do the wrong thing, and never have a bad attitude, and you will be perfectly happy. Isn't that good news? Now, there's a slight problem here. What's the problem? What have you already done probably this morning? You've probably, in one de- to one degree or another, taken the wrong advice. You've probably, to one degree or another, already done the wrong thing. And to one degree or another, you've already had a... And if you haven't yet, you've got a few hours left in the day before it's done. That's why you have to see that before Psalm 1 is your psalm, it's Jesus' psalm. Psalm 1 is a picture of Jesus. Was Jesus ever given the wrong advice? Yes, just think of the three temptations. He was repeatedly, at the beginning of his ministry, he was given the wrong advice. Remember when he told the disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem, what did Peter say? No, Lord. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Wrong advice. When Jesus was on the cross... People said, come down, and if you come down, we'll believe in you. Wrong advice. From beginning to end, Jesus got the wrong advice. But what did he never do? He never followed it. He never did the wrong thing. Hebrews says he was tempted in every way, just like you and I are, and yet he was without sin. And so Jesus never had an attitude. Even in the Garden of Eden, 
I mean, not the Garden of Eden. Let's try that again. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember when Jesus was facing his death on the cross? This is my kind of paraphrase of that. He's praying to his father, and he says, Father, you want to save your people from their sins, and I want you to know I'm all about that. Uh, That's my plan also. But I also want you to know, Father, if there is a plan B tucked away somewhere, I'll take plan B over plan A. Now, that's not... Our translations say that Jesus said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That means if you've got plan B, I'll take it. But then what did he end by saying? Nevertheless, not my will, but he never had that bad attitude in his relationship with the Father. In other words, Jesus has lived Psalm 1 for you. Please don't leave here thinking, if I can only do it better. No. Jesus has already done it perfectly well for you. The life you live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. But not only has Jesus lived this psalm for you, he's now in the process of producing this psalm in you so that more and more you actually become this person. Sanctification is probably a word you've heard before. We often think of sanctification of becoming what we're not. Oh, I'm not patient enough. I'm not kind enough. I'm not gentle enough. I don't meditate on God's word enough. I've got to become what I'm not. I don't think that's sanctification. Sanctification is becoming who you are in Christ. In Christ, right now, you are perfectly patient. You are perfectly kind. You are perfectly meditating on God's word day and night. In Christ, you are perfectly holy. We call that justification. And what you are now becoming through sanctification, you're becoming that new creation that you are already in Christ. And so don't think of what I'm not. Think of who I am. And in Christ, you are perfect by grace through faith. He's lived it for you. He's now producing it in you as you continue to meditate and as you continue to rely on the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless uh, this reflection on Psalm 1 to each of our hearts and lives as you know that each of us need it. We pray that you might help us as a result of reflecting on this word to rely more upon your grace that is ours in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.